Welcome to Leadership Web, a podcast series from the University of Arkansas that exposes listeners to a wide range of perspectives on leadership. Through interviews with current leaders, Leadership Web strives to provide tools for you to either begin building your own or continue improving your existing leadership framework. We believe that there is no one single path to successful leadership, but that we can all learn from each other on our own leadership journeys. Today we are joined by Mr. John Reap, former President and Chief Executive Officer of Town North Bank and CU Bank Shares. His top five values are being fair, having a stated plan and vision, communication, hiring good people, delegating and monitoring, and having fun. We have with us today John Reap, who has almost 40 years of experience in the banking industry and almost 20 years as a CEO of two different banks. He has lots of experience in leading, not only at the banks, he's also been a leader in uh, the University of Arkansas in a number of ways over the years. And John, we are so thrilled you're willing to share your wisdom with us about leadership. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Glad to do it. I hope I can provide some help and some insight. You know, leadership, of course, we've talked to you about leadership and we've seen you lead over the years. One of the things that I know about you when I became dean, um, I remember you talking to me and telling me, hey, you know, I was reluctant to take the position. And I shared with you, I thought, you know, I don't know if I really have what it takes to lead at that level. Even though I've, I've run my own companies, they were small. Um, you know, all of a sudden leading uh, a school with, you know, 350 employees and 6,500 students, I thought, I can't do that. And I remember you told me, you said, all leaders have faults. All leaders have weaknesses. But over time, you work on those. You don't ignore them. You address them. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? Yes, I'll be happy to. I, I think to kind of give a backdrop of me with leadership, like I tell people, I like to be in charge. And if you're in charge, it's almost imperative that you be a leader. But being in charge and being a leader are two different things. I, I do think to some extent that you're born with leadership. I think you can develop it, as you implied. You can uh, you can learn it, uh, but you've got to make a concerted effort to do it from the right people. And uh, in my particular case, uh, I learned a lot of my leadership traits by watching people that I was underneath. They were leaders. They were kind of my leaders, especially in business. Do things wrong. You need to identify a leader first. Needs to identify. What makes a good leader? What are what are the qualities do you have to have? And then sit back and say, okay, how do I rate myself within those qualities? Uh, certainly, for instance, in, in my case, uh, one thing I preached a lot is communication. And I, it, at our peak, our bank was uh, 275 people. And we were a large suburban bank in Dallas. It didn't start out that way. I had a lot of different functions. Uh, we In our bank, we had a card operation, card processing operations that most banks our size didn't have, so I had to provide leadership in that. 
But you need to really assess what you need to be a leader. Communication is big, and how do you communicate? I guess that was as toughest as anything I had to, what do you say to the board in a bank? Uh, and I can get into this later, but in a bank you've got a board, you've got stockholders, you've got customers, you've got staff. And each of them requires a different uh, level of uh, expertise in, in communication. Do you say too much? Do you say too little? Uh, for instance, in communication, uh, I, was, I always tried to encourage people and recognize people. Uh, but one thing I ran into is I was having staff meetings and uh, with officers. Uh, we had a lot of officers at our bank. You got to be watching. You got to be just a little thing, but it can it can really hurt you in calling out somebody for special recognition, where you may have five or ten other people in there that have done something recently that deserve just as much recognition, but you've called them out. I mean, that can cause morale issues. It's just little things, but you've got to identify all the all the skill sets that you think you need, and then uh, what am I good at? Grade myself, and then the ones you're not good at. Try to develop them or, or hire people that can help you. Uh, I, I use consultants. Our bank uh, ownership and board was, was very positive about using consultants to help in, in that, in leadership. And of course, there's, as we all know, there's so many leadership books out there and so much leadership style. And it can, it can be very, very confusing. But you need, to, you need to try to make it as condensed an effort as possible and concise to, to learn and assess yourself and learn the basic qualities and assess yourself and, and try to either get help or hire for help, whatever, to, to be successful. John, you were CEO of these banks during the time of a lot of tumultuous uh, occurrences in our economy and in the world. John Cotter, who's one of my favorite management or leadership gurus, he always says, you know, leadership is for addressing change or dealing with change, creating change, and management is about creating consistency, bringing order to things, dealing with complexity. You were leading banks during a time of lots of change, and there were a lot of banks that went under during those years. How did you deal with that? I'm sure there were times that you had employees that were concerned about their jobs and, and their future? That's a, a good question and a good topic to bring up or a good uh, event to bring up, if you will, an event that took place over a number of years. You just had to be in banking in Dallas in the late 80s and early 90s. We almost had a banking depression in Dallas. I was fortunate enough just through not so much insight on my part but circumstance and a previous bank that I worked for to kind of smell the problems coming early and it were real estate related and uh, what I did in terms of the overall direction of the bank is to try to steer us away from the problem areas. Uh, a lot of banks though had gotten so heavily invested in real estate before all this happened that there's just no way you, no way you can call loans and you know pretty soon you're you're selling collateral at 10 cents on the dollar and your bank's under, your capital's depleting. So I think that the overriding thing is that you have to, you have to stay abreast of the market and you have to talk to people and you have to read and you have to talk to your customers and, and see if you can see these things happening. But the, the thing that, that I think saved our bank, and we were one of the first independent banks, or one of the few independent banks of size that kind of what I call made it through the Great Depression. 
I think it started in 85 with the smaller banks. It wasn't over till about 93. Is to just get the right people, keep a steady hand. Don't, as a leader, don't panic. Don't certainly don't let your staff see that you're panicking. You can worry all you want to. Talk to examiners, bank examiners. As a bank, we were a national bank, and so we dealt with the comptroller currency. I was one of the few bank presidents that actually got along with the bank examiners. I enjoyed them. We had we were very fortunate. We had some good ones at our bank, and I, I would talk to them about trends and stuff. So, to talk about that particular topic. I think it's just having a real good sixth sense for the market and trying to educate yourself on the market and what are other people doing to avoid it. But that was an incredibly difficult time to uh, navigate through. I mean, there were a lot of good bankers, smart people, a lot smarter than I am that didn't make it uh, just because they're, of the, the assets their banks were. You can, you can lead and manage come home, but in the banking business, if you're invested in loans, of a certain type, when you've got a banking recession slash depression going on, you know, they, your leadership style, your management style, nobody cares about it. All they care about is what does the capital account look like, and so it, it was a tough time. But I, but mine was just more just staying on top of things and trying to talk to a lot of people that I thought could help me navigate. And other banks, what, what were they doing and how were they dealing with it, and uh, and talking to the regulators. You know, there's a. Harvard Business Review article that I really like. It's titled In Praise of the Incompetent Leader. And basically what it's about is there's no one leader that embodies all of the capabilities that are needed. In that article, they talk about the need for four capabilities in particular. One is visioning. One is inventing. One is sense-making and one is relating. And so I know you've told me, I want to ask you about this, you really believe in having a stated vision and a stated plan. That's the first one. The second one is inventing. In other words, if you've got vision and a plan, you still wind up having to invent ways to actually get them executed. Yep. And sense is about saying, what's going on in the world? What's going on internally? How do I explain this? How do I, uh, what's the narrative behind what's going on? So when you were going through all of this tumultuous time, which as a side note, the way things are going in Dallas right now, it's hard to believe that ever happened. It's scary what's going on in Dallas right it now. It is. From a banking perspective, but that's my opinion. But. You, you know, and then relating. So you were mentioning there was a lot of communicating you had to do. You had to talk to your employees, you had to talk to customers, you had to talk to bank regulators. So you were doing tons of relating on the one hand. On the other hand, you were having to do lots of sense making because you were having to learn what was going on and understand it and then say, well, what does this mean for us given where we're going? Were you putting in an unusual amount of hours during that time or how did you get all that done? Well, I don't know. Probably from an emotional standpoint, not just at work, but away from work. It got scary at times. I mean, you were like a lot of us. I mean, you were to some extent fearful for your job, fearful for the bank. I, I don't know. I, one thing about me, my wife talks about this, but I, I do a pretty good job of compartmentalizing. And, and that's something I don't think you learn, quite frankly. I think you either got it. I thought Bill Clinton, I didn't agree with Bill Clinton politically on a lot of things. But that man had the most incredible ability to compartmentalize. I think we know that. 
I had I heard Sam Donaldson talk about that on ABC, the great reporter, broadcaster for ABC, was talking about Clinton's uh, compartmentalization. But I, I had the ability to compartmentalize. I could easily shift from a from a meeting with my staff where I had to be kind of upbeat and visionary to a very serious meeting with a bank examiner uh, or a serious meeting with a, with a board member or something. You just kind of have to put, I hate to use this phrase, it's worn out, you kind of put your big boy pants on and get after it. And you have to learn too that everything that you do as a leader, I mean, you're living in a glass box, especially in a bank. And everybody's watching you, so you gotta watch. It's tough, but you gotta recognize it though. In my case, just recognizing it, uh, being aware of what I had to do, being aware of what people were expecting of me, being aware of my own person, my own presence, but navigating through the Great Depression of banking here, which is the overriding question here, was it was just paying attention to what the heck's going on and keeping in touch with your other banking friends. And the bank examiners, I can say a lot of, about bank examiners, a lot of bankers don't like them, but they could give you some heads up on some things. Talking to your accountants, being a banker is a, is, as a president's a tough deal. You've got a lot of, you got a lot of stuff you've got to do by, by regulation. You got attorneys, you got accountants, you got bank examiners that are watching you, advising you, and staying in touch with those people and just keeping up with the trends. And there's a lot of things, even though you keep up with them, you can't adjust. But you know, how can I shift my bank just a little bit? And uh, in terms of a vision, for instance, uh, I felt like you, we always need to have a vision. We always need to have a vision statement. But let's tweak the darn thing. We just can't have it and set it and put it like everybody said. You know, get your strategic plan, your vision statement. Put it on the put it on the, in the file and pull it out once a year and take a look at it. It has to be an ongoing type deal. In our particular case, one thing that, uh, and I think this is this is where banks are making it now. One thing that really helped us is seeing how we could get into other products and services other than just core banking. You know, my dad was a banker. My grandfather was a banker. And for years and years and years and years, my grandfather, gosh, was bank commissioner of the state of Arkansas. I think I've told you this, Matt, back in, right after post-World War I. Back in those days, banking was real simple. You just, you had real stiff investments, you had just everyday loans, and you made net interest income. That's the way you made money. But now banks, the banks that are making it now, I mean, unequivocally, have got to get into, away from net interest income and into fee-based services. What saved us and we had this in place before the Great Depression. We had a very large card processing service of debit and credit cards for credit unions. Tremendous fee income. We didn't carry that asset on our books. We just serviced it. It was on the credit union's books and we made a lot. And so one big thing that I did is I ramped that up because there was no risk there. Now there was some, op there was some operational risk, but it wasn't asset risk. It wasn't, you know, we weren't carrying the receivable. There was settlements, you had to settle every day with large amounts of money. A lot of big wires going on every day. And of course, there's stories of screwing that up and taking banks down with wires, not doing it right. But that's what I did. I saw we had this card processing operation that was kind of, wasn't limping along, but it was just running real steady. I saw where we could ramp that thing up and expand the marketplace. We were just doing credit unions in Texas. We expanded to the region, and then we expanded nationally. And when I retired, I mean, we were the second largest processor of credit cards for credit unions in the country. You don't think too much about credit unions, but they're pretty powerful, and they've got a lot. They're hiring MBAs to run credit unions now. 
and we were running up against that. And uh, but to, to walk into uh, credit unions, uh, I remember the Navy Credit Union is one of the most powerful, largest credit unions in, in, in the United in the world. It sits there right in near Arlington, Virginia, and to walk arm in arm with with the Mastercard people in there was pretty powerful. So I ended up enjoying leading from a high level the credit card division more than I did the bank because the bank just what didn't become fun and you know you got to have fun as a leader <laughs> the bank was doing okay but the profits were going down and, and doing the model you know you just you just had a real tough time so you had to see what you had to see from a visionary standpoint is what the impact of the deregulation of interest rates was going to have on the profitability of your bank. And okay, and, and so if you look at all the banks now, and you look at their balance sheets and their income statement, they would all tell you that this non, it's they call it non-interest income, fee income, is is where they're living, that's where their bread and butter is. They're just not making that traditional net interest income. So, Well, you were entrepreneurial too because you saw an opportunity, you invested in it, and you went after it. And I'm sure there was a lot of learning along the way. You probably, um, and once you got into it, you probably realized, oh, I need to do this a little differently or, or that. But you hired the right people as well. And it's a good thing because then that diversity of revenue streams made your bank a lot safer. Do you think your employees realized that at the time, that the, the safety that created for them? Yes, and that was tricky because I'm a banker. Uh, I came in as a banker, third generation banker, trained as a banker, and yet on the banking side, we call it the banking side and the card side. And when I retired, two thirds of our staff was on the card side. But keeping keeping the banking side people motivated, knowing they knew I was a banker, but I didn't, and, and we needed for a lot of reasons to keep the banking side going, even though we weren't making as much money, but not to not to show favoritism to the card side in front of the bankers. It was kind of, we, we had a unique bank, it really was, and I loved it. I feel very fortunate to have worked there. To, that's another thing in terms of being a, a leader is how you, because we got together once a month for an officer's meeting. Staff meetings, we had those maybe twice a year. But to, it, to portray that we're just kind of one big happy family, we need it all. But yes, the top leaders in the bank, all my direct reports, we all knew. We had P&Ls working on on everything, so we knew, we knew where the money was coming from. You got to be, you got to, and I'm not a gambler. Let me tell you. Oh my God, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm this conservative. My dad, my dad's definition of risk was a CD, you know, and, uh, and not a musical CD. No, no, no. And he he didn't have a, and of course, Daddy didn't have the money. He didn't have any money. You know, it's amazing how little my parents had raising my sister and I. But I'm not a risk taker. But I had to learn to take risk, and I had to. Hire people, all of which mainly were younger, that could help me navigate through risk taking. Because cards was a little different because we had been in it and I knew enough about the basics to, and I knew enough people to help me hire the right people. And that's, that's really critical. I, I can't emphasize enough, I've already talked to you guys about this, but, but I can't emphasize enough about getting the right people. And preparation for this, you asked me to provide bullet points. I think if there's anything that I can say about my leadership style that might stand out is that I, and I had an ownership that was very supportive of this. They, they paid well. Our ownership was very supportive of paying the top people well. And that really helped me. It's like, like you said at the first, you know, what are all the qualities of a leader? 
how do I rate myself in each one and then hire weaknesses that I have and then you got to have you've got to give them authority you just don't hire to the weaknesses you've got to get what I did and it was really tough it was gosh when I started out in management when I was 28 years old I was fortunate to start out in management I was if you want to do it right do it, do it yourself type guy I couldn't delegate I had to but that was just running a note being over a note department of a small bank and uh but I had to really, really, and that was a risk for me. That was a big risk to delegate and give authority. Not only delegate it, but give authority. And what I call it is delegate, hire well, delegate to them, give them authority, and then I call it just monitoring. Uh, to use a golf analogy, just keep it in the short rough. You know, you can, not just in the fairway. If you go out of bounds, it better be damn few times you go out of bounds. But my big thing was, was you know those things but you've got and you got to learn how to monitor and you monitor with meetings you monitor with just what I call pop quiz phone calls you got to let these people even though they're giving them a lot of authority you've got to let them know that you're not totally trusting them because I had a few that I had to get rid of and took advantage of my delegation and unfortunately most of the times you find that out how you find it out is somebody having the nerve to tell you that's going on it happened to me three or four times in my career. And I note at least two, two of them, I had some members of my staff that had the nerve to tell me what was going on, hmm. that they were abusing the authority I'd given them. Wow. Because that's a real danger in delegation, as we all know, to just let these, you know, we can all brag about our staff. You got the engineering's got a great staff. Walton College has got a great staff. But they may be great, and they may have intelligence, and they may get along with you and smuse you, but are they really working 100% in the best interest of the school all the time and not taking advantage of the, of the authority that you've given? I respect you guys for getting into leadership at the university level because, gosh, when I was in school, nobody talked about it. You might have talked about it, but you never drilled down. You never gave any emphasis to it. And there's just, as you guys know, you see it, you're, and you're, you're doing it in your colleges, you're partnering, you're out there in the business world. And that, to me, there's nothing more absent in this world today. I don't care if it's business, certainly government and politics, than good leadership. And you can teach it. You can't entirely, but you could dead gum sure talk about it and emphasize it. And I thank you guys for doing it. As I look through your values here, there are a couple here that, that are spot-on things that I completely relate with you, and to me, they kind of tie together because of your experiences. And you talk about some things that are very important, being fair, and then having fun. And you mentioned fun a while ago, and that clicked, and I want to follow back up and connect that with fair, because there must have been, there were times, based on what you just said, that it didn't feel good, and fun had been just drained out of everything, and you probably had to do things that could be argued as not being fair. And so, I mean, fair from the perspective of maybe somebody losing their job because something dried up, the revenue stream, I'm, I'm, you know. And so I would be so interested, and I think that our students would like to know, because this is going to hit everybody who rolls into leadership, times when you can be perceived as not being fair, and it's hard to find the fun in it. When I became president, we started uh, a more formalized employee orientation. And a part of that was I would come in, we had one girl in our HR department who I knew well, had worked for me before in the lending area. And 
she was great. She had a psychology degree, and she just switched from lending to HR, but did a great job. She would do an orientation that would last about two-thirds of a day, and I would come in for maybe 10 or 15 minutes, and there are three things that I emphasize to these new employees. Now, these could be clerical. We'd stop maybe at the VP level, and uh, we'd go, everybody that was hired, VP and below, would do this. And for the others, which there weren't that many, senior VPs and EVPs, there weren't that many. We did it different ways. But I would come in and I'd talk about three things. I'd talk about fair, fun, and communication. Now, I've already addressed communication in here. You know, when you think about it, and this is just, it's just no-brainer stuff, where do you spend most of your time? Well, you either at work, you're sleeping. You spend more time at work than you do with your spouse, generally, except for weekends, Okay vacations but if you if you were to go run the math and say okay I spend in my case of course I was the boss but I'd spend 10 11 hours a day but most people are going to spend eight to nine hours a day and plus some transportation time to me it's a no-brainer that you have fun but I came from an environment uh, my dad worked for a bank in Little Rock Arkansas which any older Arkansans that uh, are listening to this that have any uh, understanding of business and banking, uh, Worthen Bank and Trust. Worthen Bank was the, when my dad worked there, he worked there for 45 years, from 1934 to 1979, retired the first pay period after his 65th birthday. And he was by the book guy, and he was my hero. But daddy worked for Worthen Bank, even though it was owned by the Worthen and Pennock family. They controlled the bank. They had a family within a family. And my dad was the fam in the family within the family. And they had fun. The ownership of that bank and the leadership of that bank, who were all the leaders were for the most part, and it got bigger, it changed a little bit, but they were the, they were the top people in those families. They had fun, they had picnics, they, uh, uh, they just, they had, they had, they'd have a Christmas party, but they'd have a, a real safe, fun Christmas party. I remember it was my mother's most favorite thing to do was to go to the Warden Bank Christmas party. And they always had it at a big hotel and they danced. My parents loved to dance, so that was great. But but I saw that as a kid, so I developed an attitude growing up of, man, that's just kind of what you do. Now, I didn't think as a youngster I was going to go in banking, but uh, as I got older, I went into it. It was kind of natural, my dad and my grandfather. But I said, man, if I've got any influence, if I get in a bank, if I stay in this banking world, I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to have some fun. And, uh, well, we do little things like uh, we'd have a lot of, we'd serve meals on the day before Thanksgiving. We'd serve a meal Two days, two or three days before Christmas, we had uh, dress-up days. That was a lot of fun. We'd have dress-up days. We'd have a chili cooking uh, contest. That was that was. I'm just thinking of some things. One day when we were celebrating our, I guess it was our 20th anniversary, we had a we had a different dress-up day every week. But that just, you know, I can go on and on about it. But I just think that that helps you accept. Uh, Work on a on a day to day basis. I mean, you know, everybody says get in your passion, get in a job in your passion, get in something you love, and get after it. Well, I tell my son this a lot. I said, Jackson, when you look at the workforce and you look at the people that are really totally content in their job, there aren't that's it's a low percentage. So to offset that, you have fun, and I could go on and on about fun. But I I, I just tried to create, especially with my marketing department and my secretary, they were they were the ones that kind of would keep me focused in on it because I wasn't, it wasn't my job to think about, well, we need to do this, have a cocktail party, not a cocktail party, but a, a chili contest. They were always kind of coming up with stuff. And then the fairness, and I think fairness, uh, 
gosh, it flows over into integrity. And the way, uh, John, that I dealt, I, I guess the one thing I could say about being fair is be fair in everything, in everything. Yes, the hardest thing I did was to terminate somebody. I come across to a lot of people as a big old gruff, harsh kind of guy sometimes, but I'm a teddy bear. And to let people go, oh, it breaks my heart. But what I try to, the, the main thing that I tried to do, whether it was making a decision of a real critical business nature, which I can remember one, one time in our credit card area, we could, we could manipulate some pricing to make some more money, but the credit unions wouldn't even know it. It was, it was so buried in the statements that they'd never know it. And my man, my head man told me that. He said, John, we can generate X more money. If we do this, they'll never see it. I said, we're not going to do it because it wasn't fair. And, and then the, the big thing with dealing with people, now that's a business decision dealing with customers. When you're dealing, I don't care if you're letting go, which I had to let go my right-hand man. I had to let go my number two man because he was undermining me. And but even though I had some venom against him and some disappointment, obviously, and just had to do it, even though if I'm dealing with him or dealing with a, with a uh, I'd say, a clerical person that I didn't have to do, I try to, if I'm doing it or I'm telling somebody to do it, when they're trying to assess the situation, I, I say, put yourself in that person's head. Okay, if I'm John Reap, if I'm in this person's head and I'm, and I'm going to be terminated, I mean, how would I want it to be done? Let me tell you, that isn't done much. That flat is not done much in this world because we hear stories all the time of terrible ways people get terminated. It's just the way your tone of voice, it's how you do it, how much time you take. There's all kinds of ways to do it. I'm just talking one deal. But in terms of being fair, when, you, when you're having to make a decision or take an action that requires or you think requires some element of fairness, really think it out and get in the head. The big thing is put yourself in the head of the person that it's affect or the persons. I'll give you an example. This is a, I've said this through the last 15 years of my career. It had to do with the gentleman I had to let go, my number two guy. We had decided to relocate our information desk in the lobby or create an information desk that we never had had. And our, this is just a, an example of fairness. It sounds real simple, but it's, it reverberates, reverberates with, with tone and message. We had been talking about it for a year. We knew that when it happened, this one girl was going to be taken away from a semi-private office in a comfortable area, and she was going to have to man the information desk. We ended up having to have the desk made, literally made, not in today's world, we, you could probably find it, but we had this special made that we had, he had known this for nine months. And when the desk came in, and he was telling me it's in, we're going to set it up tomorrow, and Susie or whatever her name was is going to man it. I said, okay, well, what did Susie say all about that? I mean, how, you know, she's going to lose her privacy. And, and this was a girl that had worked for us for a while. And uh, she said, well, I hadn't even told her. I said, she's going to move tomorrow, and you hadn't told her, and we've known about this for nine months, and this is going to affect her day to day. He said, if she doesn't like it, she can quit. But see, that's, that's an example of being fair, I think. It's, it tells you a lot of things. But the main thing is fairness is integrity. It's doing what's right, even when nobody's looking. Character, integrity. 
And that's so huge to me. And yeah, I tried to, you know, John, I, I tried, you know, I had to, fortunately in my bank, uh, we didn't have it near as bad as a lot of banks or a lot of companies, but I had to, uh, you had to deliver negative news and you just, you just had to be, you had to be compassionate with people and uh, the old golden rule doing to others as you would have them doing to you is, uh, I think there's a lot of cutthroat black and white HR activity going on and that's kind of what I'm talking about in this particular case, HR activity. This should be emanated and led out of your HR department. Well, I think, um, I really appreciate it. I laughed a little bit because we asked for your five values and you gave us seven, which I think is fantastic because you, you had five lines and you put five lines in and then you tucked a little sixth line in there that yeah. actually had two things on it. And I've got one we hadn't even talked about. And that's the one I wanted to bring up because I've, I've really enjoyed your discussion of being fair, of communicating, of having fun, which we don't actually hear a lot about in these podcasts. But I think it's fantastic that one of your top five was having fun. You talked about having a stated plan and vision, hiring good people, delegating that authority and monitoring. But the one you haven't talked about yet is being visible to your entire staff. So what, what made you think of that? I think that I developed that. I started at a uh, my banking career, of course, right out of SMU MBA here in Dallas at Republic Bank Dallas. Republic Bank Dallas in 1971 when I joined was the largest bank in the South. And my dad had worked for the largest bank in Arkansas, but the largest bank in the South and the largest bank in Arkansas, two different deals. But even at my dad's bank, uh, I was down there enough, downtown Little Rock, I just kind of had a feel, and I was enthralled by that bank, as you can probably tell, but you, you just didn't see the boss. And of course, at Republic, you almost didn't see the boss by definition. Now, you know, that's, you know, when you're running a huge, huge, largest bank in the South, you know, but then I go from Republic to almost a de novo bike. Startup bike, it's four years old. You can see the boss all the time. I kind of got it both ways, and I just developed an attitude that I wanted, if I ever became president, which I wanted to be a bank president, I decided that early on, even, even when I was in college, I think. But you've got to, your issued orders, your issued edicts, I'm being a little, I don't mean to be military here, but, and you know they're coming out of this guy's office or they're coming around a team of people that report to him and you need to know he's there, that he's a real live person. To bring it out to where people can see it and not see it on a piece of paper or coming out of a supervisor's mouth, that there are, there's, there's really somebody that's got some fairness to him, that's got some compassion to him, that's got some fun to him, that's sitting there driving the bus and this was this was one of the toughest things for me but you know I can talk a good game about this stuff but one of the toughest things and my secretary really had to get on my case about this just walk around the bank you know the the theory management by walking around sounds like a no-brainer but just getting out and walking around I like I like people I like to kid I like to joke uh, I can be sarcastic. I can I can do a lot of things, but I I like for people to like me, okay? And that helped me it, it running a bank. And I, I I could kid with the lowest. I could kid with the janitor. It's just, and that's the way my dad was. If you ask about Alvin Reap at Worthen Bank, and I, I learned this. I guess I learned this from my dad. My dad was, and he was visible. He was visible. He was the head of the real estate department. He wasn't up in the executive suite, but Daddy was just as nice. To the janitor as he was to the CEO, and but to be nice, you got to be 
you got to know people got to know you're nice and if you don't if they don't see you they don't how do they know it so but that was when I got in when I got into my job a lot and doing some of the stuff we were talking about with Matt and having to navigate through the tough waters of the business environment that's the thing that's the hardest to do you know you're, you're faced all the time with communication problems you're faced all the time with fairness issues you're faced all the time with getting the right people to offset your weaknesses. You're faced all the time, at least I think you need to be, with doing a plan and having a vision statement. But you're, you've got to remind yourself to get out there and let people know that you're around. And I think it goes for a university. I've been around, what, four or five chancellors now. They each have their little bit different style about getting around, and, uh, and I've seen one overdo it. There's a balance, too. And uh, it, it's in anything that's a business. And there are a lot of things that are businesses that don't know their businesses too. So, i.e., a church that's another one of my topics. But, but anyway, you've got to be around. That was the toughest to keep top of mind was being visible. Good, outstanding job. Thank you for joining Leadership Web today. We hope that you found insight and guidance on leadership tools from this interview. Please join Leadership Web in two weeks as we explore another leader's leadership journey. Also, follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn by searching Leadership Web.